Recently, I did a deep dive Amazon keyword research project. Naturally, I reached for my trusty Amazon keyword research tool, Magnet. Magnet is just one of 20 tools in Helium 10, an all-in-one software toolkit to help sellers start, build, and grow a business on Amazon. Helium 10 has served over a million users worldwide and tracks over 2 billion products on Amazon. You get all the main tools you need to run the keyword research and listing in one place, so you don't have to pay for different software. Magnet in particular is a great tool for finding great keywords to target for your next product. So whether you're just getting started or you're several years into selling on Amazon, Helium 10 is a must-have tool for your business. You'll get 50% off your first month of Helium 10 Platinum when you go to helium10.com and use the code AMAZINGFBA when you check out. Once again, just go to helium10.com and use the code AMAZINGFBA for 50% off your first month. Ladles and jelly spoons, boys and girls, welcome back to the 10K Collective Podcast, a sub podcast in the amazing FBA family for six, seven and eight figure Amazon sellers and also e-commerce sellers more generally. And today we have a very interesting discussion. I'm looking forward to a lot. We're welcoming Dr. Robin Gaster, author of Behemoth Rising, all about Amazon strategy. Every so often somebody comes out with a big book about Amazon and I think it really is incredibly important for us to educate ourselves about this because we are living and breathing on that platform or competing with it either which way if we're in e-commerce you have to understand Amazon. And so a great topic, Robin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. You know, I found it a fascinating topic as I wrote it and I can't seem to even let go of it. It just keeps, ch <laughs> keeps chasing me around. So I, I imagine that I imagine beyond this for a while. Yes, I think you might be. Well, it's just such a huge, it's a huge company, but it's also a fascinating company in so many ways intellectually. But if you're involved with it, it's more than intellectual. So let's get into the why question, and then we'll introduce yeah. you. But let's get into that why first. Why on earth should third party sellers or e-commerce sellers even bother to think about Amazon's strategy and how they make money? Isn't that just stuff of Wall Street investors? Shouldn't we just focus on running our businesses and leave that to somebody else? Well, you know, there, there are 6 million sellers on Amazon. Everybody is competing. We understand that. But for, for many, perhaps even most, Amazon itself is still the biggest competitor, right? It's 1P business, competes with, with millions of sellers. So how Amazon sees that 1P business and how it sees the relationship between 1P and 3P, what it sees as the future of the marketplace seems to me absolutely central. You know, I have a this sort of analogy that Amazon is the is the great white whale of e-commerce and it is surrounded by millions of very efficient, very well focused sharks. Right? That's the third party sellers. They each know their niche, they know exactly what they're doing and they are looking to take a bite out of Amazon just like they're looking to take a bite out of everyone else. But given Amazon's scale and its needs, it's really important to understand what that whale is up to. That it's normally Amazon that's the shark and everyone else is a kind of poor little fish getting eaten. But I like that, the fact that actually some of the third-party sellers, particularly, I think, you, you, you know, one of the statistics from the book that stuck out, so like 40% of the sellers in the US are Chinese sellers. I believe, by the way, it's even bigger in Amazon UK, just in case you thought mm -hmm. you were getting away with it in UK. Even broadly speaking, economically, the UK is now even more beholden to China than it was. Germany was our biggest import partner. But thanks to the insert rude adjective here, Brexit, 
then <laughs> Germany is now not, not our import partner with whom we've had cordial relations for decades. It's now who's even possibly slightly scarier than Amazon. So <laughs> yes, the third party sellers could indeed be the sharks. It's an interesting point. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your background. Obviously, um, we have the English accent, as they would call yeah. it in, in America, which to my ears just sounds normal. But you've come over to America. You've been there for a while. So tell us a bit more about what, what took you to America and what you've um, been doing. Yeah, I went, to, I went to do a PhD at Berkeley which I finally completed. And then I tried academia for a bit. I taught at the University of Virginia and decided that academia didn't really suit me. It's too narrow and too slow moving. I got an extremely weird job in the boardroom of the International Monetary Fund, for which I have many stories, but <laughs> not relevant here. And and then I got to be a congressional fellow working for the Office of Technology Assessment, and that turned me towards technology. And since then, I've really been working in many different ways at the intersection of data, technology, politics, and economics done a lot of I've run my own consulting business now for almost 40 years and uh, I worked for nonprofit institutions national institutions agencies and a lot of companies who need to have problems solved so and the way I got to Amazon was via the gig economy I wrote a book about the gig economy and I didn't like it very much I don't think it was uh, good enough so I was sitting on that and I got talking to my local Amazon delivery guy and he explained to me that actually he wasn't working for Amazon. He was a gig uh, worker, just like Uber and Lyft. And that got me sort of just starting to sort of think about Amazon and why it was doing that and, and about the sort of pushing jobs out of the core of the company. And so I got into Amazon just at a time where Amazon was really exploding in all kinds of directions. And I found it uh, absolutely fascinating and unique. You know, we, we think of Amazon as just this big company. And I don't think that's at all true. I think Amazon's culture is unique. I think the way to think about it is more like the Jesuits or the Marines. They have an obsessive character and they are determined to serve their one <laughs> their one true god which is the customer great for customers yeah <laughs> interesting summary wow it's an interesting that you've come to this and what i really like about this and i make no apology in fact i kind of insist every so often that everyone gets outside the amazon bubble or the amazon echo chambers as my friend uh will chin and he was himself you know consulted within the amazon sort of echo chamber but we've got to get outside that and see it from a different perspective because otherwise we you know if you're a fish you don't see the sea you're sailing swimming in, i guess and if you're an amazon seller day in day out you don't you become blind to you know the whale on whose back you're crawling i'm breaking my <laughs> metaphors to pieces here talking about mixing metaphors but yeah very interesting that by the way this is i have to say somehow like a as grit in an oyster produces a pearl that's a conversation from a man of your skills and a mindset <laughs> with a local amazon delivery guy produces a you know a book that is not insubstantial i've read the whole thing i have to say and it's it's fascinating but there's a lot of detail so that's funny isn't it how how you know there's always um, somebody, somebody has a certain poss nature possibly i have my own obsessive character to you know yeah. follow follow where this led right yeah uh, well yes i think that the obsessive character thing is is a very interesting uh, binding thread between yourself myself amazon sellers i know and of course the great jeff bezos and, and his lieutenants so why does this thing about it being more like a cult matter then is, is that not just again something for wall street or if you happen to work for amazon directly 
correctly, but why, why does it change well, the nature well, of working you know, with them? It, it, it helps to illuminate some of the issues inside Amazon to do with how they treat workers. You know, if you're expected, it, look, most big, I've, I've worked for big organizations. Big organizations expect you to go along. They, they, they expect you to comply with the culture and the organization and what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do. And Amazon doesn't want compliance. They want commitment. They want belief. They want missionaries. So the converse is either you're a missionary or you're not for the people who work there. And if you're not, you're better off somewhere else. Bezos has said that many times. But now to apply that to the sellers, right? It's, it, it's sort of, in a certain way, the same view. You come to Amazon, you do things the Amazon way, and either you do them or you don't. And if you don't, you leave. And they don't care. And so there is, you know, when Amazon was tiny, none of this mattered, really. But now Amazon is so big. It has 1.2 million employees. It has 6 million sellers. Uh, it's enormous. The collateral damage that Amazon can do is now enormous, too. And if Amazon doesn't care about it, then that's a, that's a problem. And it's something, obviously, that sellers have had to deal with endlessly, right? Yeah. Amazon runs, runs the marketplace, in my view, on a shoestring. They don't want to spend much money on it. Every dollar they spend to manage the marketplace is a dollar they're not spending to grow their business. Yeah, they, they're really, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Considering the the sheer number of people involved, like kind of percentage of the small businesses of the US or, or even of the US and Europe, and also the fact that it counts for, what is it, 50, I'm trying to remember your statistics now, 58% of Amazon gross marketplace volume or something like that. I'm just going yeah, to be out of doubt, whichever statistic we take. Yeah, it's about, six, it's about yeah. 60, easiest yeah, to remember, I mean, 60%. Yeah. Exactly. So considering that, it's extraordinary how ugly Seller Central is, how incredibly badly organized, how incredibly offhand their treatment of third-party sellers is. At least that's how it feels as a third-party seller. So what's behind that then? I mean, I understand the sort of Jesuit-like obsessing thing. I understand third-party sellers are only valued insofar as they contribute to that. But, but what's the what's the deeper sort of reason money. why it's such a mess? Well, I think it's partly money, you know, partly money. Amazon doesn't want to spend more than it has to on what it thinks of as legacy businesses, right? Marketplace is not an exciting business. It's just a growing business and it grows. And, the you know, think of it as a sort of industrial product where you're just trying to squeeze out costs. That's that's how I think Amazon thinks of the marketplace. It's... It's not a very exciting place to work. And that matters because you think about it, Amazon's, Amazon's ability to attract talent comes not from money. They don't really pay very well. They attract people to come and work in an environment where smart people are working on really exciting products and really exciting, world-changing ideas. Amazon is about to get big time into healthcare. So if you're a smart guy at Amazon, do you, do you want to be working on the marketplace or do you want to be working on healthcare? And I think that's reflected. You know, what you have in is, is this is sort of industrial management. It's best understood as that. You have a, a, a well-established set of processes where you're trying to cut costs or minimize costs to the maximum extent possible. You know your platform 
is in a certain sense increasingly magnetic. People can't afford to really ignore it. So why do you, you don't want to spend time or money on it in, in, in any way. And you, compl you, know, you complain about the interface. Well, yes, but changing interfaces is expensive. And is it, it, would changing the interface make any positive difference for Amazon? Would it attract more sellers? Would it make sellers that much happier? I, I think they probably believe not. Yeah. You make extremely interesting points. And I guess this is why it's so important to talk to you or somebody like you that has that broader view of Amazon as a, a company, as a, an ethos, as a culture. Because a lot of the times a third-party seller, you just end up feeling hurt and depressed or whatever, or maybe um, kind of wary, which is, by the way, I think a very <laughs> rational response. But nevertheless, we, we don't think about what's driving it and therefore what a rational response is. Or I think almost here's what strikes me and why people need to listen to you and, and i think that everyone should read the book he's selling on amazon or off amazon I, and you know any Whoa. frankly it's a good book and i've read the whole thing so i can say that but it is every so often a book comes along that updates us and gives a view on amazon as a whole i think we need to read all of them particularly the well-written ones like yourself you've got that that rigor from the phd background which i think matters as well it's not just some opinion written in a hurry by some amazon seller frankly there are too many books like that there mm -hmm. i've i've been tempted to add to them but i kind of want to hold <laughs> off until i've put something out that's thought through and got a, got a rigor to it as, as yours has so mm. nevertheless i think here's the key like it, the job of a ceo is to see around corners and i frankly don't care whether you're one person business doing five hundred thousand dollars a year or you've got a big team and you're doing you know into nine figures same job and if you don't know where what's driving amazon i don't think you can see what they're going to do next because there's this constant surprise that people have like for example the ipi you know the inventory performance index was suddenly changed recently so you could only ship in not by product line but as a whole for your entire amazon account right. a right. certain amount and that changed overnight and everyone was taken by surprise but i don't think they should be it, that means that says to me i'm so sorry to say this guys but you're not doing your job as a ceo you're not looking around the corner because th that shouldn't be a surprise amazon hit capacity practically speaking months ago and that was yeah. predictable there's this thing yeah. called a pandemic right. so that's what i mean that's why i think we have to understand we just have to and this is not saying to you rob because you're yeah. convinced i'm just pleading to anyone listening right now please 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 this makes no difference to me or robin you know it's not a yeah. massively expensive book it'd be great yeah. if you buy it it'd be great if you buy my services but if you do nothing else please educate yourself about this stuff like end of sermon there you go that's my jesuit moment because <laughs> i want to protect people i see so much pain in so many businesses i work with i want to protect people I wonder, from it so can i ask you a question please do this is going so kind of go down rabbit holes but hey this is all part of it um so all right you say protect yourself one yeah. one of the sort of alarming things about amazon from a seller perspective it seems to me is that there is no protection it's very hard to protect yourself from the random movements of the great whale. If it, if it rolls over in your direction, you get squashed. And uh, so what kinds of protections do you have in mind? So, for example, against the, the IPI shift, what, what should they have been thinking of before? Even, I know everyone knew, you know, it was tight. Tight times were coming. But yeah. So, so then what? I, good question. Well, interesting uh, i like the fact that boots on the other foot so i'm very happy to answer questions like this because i think mm -hmm. there are one here's the thing the first thing that strikes me is i can't remember which consultant said love the problem the first thing is to really deeply understand the problem in other words what's amazon doing that right. could or will 
or may become a problem for us. So it's a kind of scenario planning thing. Mm-hmm. I think that's the first thing, because if you don't diagnose the problem, any any prescription, what's the phrase an old business coach of mine used to say? Prescription without diagnosis is malpractice. And there's a heck of a lot of that in the Amazon space. Yeah. So I think the first thing is to deep dive, as your book has done, into what's going on in the first place. And the second thing is then, okay, for example, the IPI thing. First of all, see it coming. Whether it's in three months, six months, nine months, or 12 months, it was a given that Amazon was going to restrict access to its warehouse. Is why there's this pandemic, there's a restriction of that, there's a massive demand, and they haven't increased supply because, like any company, they couldn't suddenly up their spend on warehouses in 30% in a year because they couldn't they have anticipated that. That's, they that's did. Exactly. Oh, no, you're sorry, you're right. 30% is exactly what they did. Yeah, yeah. but that wasn't enough. It needed to be like 80%. Exactly. So, forgive me. So, they did anticipate as well as anyone on the planet could have done, but it wasn't enough because nobody anticipated the pandemic. So, However, that once that shift was in place, it was obvious that that was going to happen. So mitigations you could do. Number one, look at the the, the packaging of your products, for example. Number two, I mean, I probably should do an entire show on this. Yeah, Number two, sure. have third-party uh, warehouses lined up and have the agreements in place. You don't have to press the firing button yet. You could have a small one in place ready to expand. You could you get your um, suppliers in China to hold more stuff in their warehouses if they have capacity. They often do, etc. There are like about 10 things you could do in advance or put in place or even action, right. all right. of which you get add to your time, hassle and, and cost. I get it. But if it's business make or break, which it is for many people, you just yeah. got to do the thing. And this is what I'm trying to say. It's really, really super hard to get the time out of your business to look ahead. But I'm yeah. such a big believer in that as a competitive advantage. But there you go. So that's my answer to my bit of the interview. That was a great, great answer. Was Thank you. Yeah. And also there is no protection, mm, I, I guess. But also anticipating when the rail whale is about to roll over, yeah. knowing that it could happen, that there's a logic behind it, there's a certain rhythm to it, and then seeing the minor last second signs to actually time that That's means right. the best protection is the you know, get out of the way. When the rail whale rolls over, just don't be there. So yeah, I agree. If the whale rolls over and you're in its path, you're you're dead. And that is right. true for a lot of businesses. Every so often Amazon just kills hundreds of thousands of businesses at a stroke. Yeah. But I believe it's possible to anticipate and at least insofar as you can, you should. There you go. Yeah. That's my answer. That's right. That's right. So <laughs> Coming back to then, you know, Amazon's nature, I, I think talking about this, um, really, really glad we're talking about this, by the way, it's just not discussed enough. Such an important book for that reason. Thomas, how does Amazon make money at the moment? You were talking about that the marketplace is kind of a legacy thing, not that sexy so and exciting, yeah. but so it does make is, a lot of money, right? Yes, so it, let's, yes, let's talk does. about so, this. So the standard model explanation of how Amazon makes money is pretty simple. Uh, Amazon in in 2019, Amazon made about 14 million, 14 billion dollars of alleged profit. We can talk about alleged later, but anyway, they reported 14 billion profit, of which nine billion came from AWS, the Amazon Amazon Web Services, and so it would seem as though Amazon Web Services is really driving everything. But this is a misunderstanding. If you dig deep into Amazon's finances, my estimate for last year was that Amazon's own proprietary first-party business lost $40 billion. So it's constantly underpricing against the competition. That's how it generates extraordinary revenue growth. So last last year, just to check, sorry to interrupt. 2020, yeah. 2020, just checking, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Sorry, keep going. 2020, it lost $40 billion. That's an enormous amount of money. So how, how is that possible? And why didn't anyone notice? They didn't notice because Amazon 
does a pretty excellent job of obfuscating its accounts. It reports its revenues by line item, but it doesn't report expenses by line item. So you have to do a lot of forensic digging to allocate expenses to each each line of business. It turns out where ha- the, the, the marketplace is Amazon's most profitable sector by far, Follow, followed um, closely by advertising, AWS, Prime. And, and together, those four segments generate, generated some 60-odd billion dollars worth of profits, which more than offset that 40 billion in loss. So Amazon is squeezing and squeezing the marketplace because it needs to. It has this big, giant uh, pool of red ink that it needs to mop up before it can start making a profit every year. It, I'm happy to explain why I think they're losing so much money in, in retail. I think it would be probably an interesting part of our conversation. But so you can see they are under constant pressure because they have this giant lead weight attached to their foot. And they're sinking with it. And so there are things they could do, which they are doing, like moving more of their uh, platform away from 1P into 3P, which is much more profitable for them. But it means that the the marketplace sellers are, you know, they're, I mean, in the book, I, I call them sharecroppers. And, and, you know, to be honest, this this is what it is. You are on, you you are living on the Amazon estate, the plantation of Amazon. And Amazon takes its cut and it allows you to work the land, to work the digital landscape. You have to do it under their rules and you have to give them the money that they want in different ways. I don't see any difference from sharecropping, to be honest. So sharecropping is, I guess, um, I'm, I know a reasonable amount of history. I love my history anyway, but I'm not very familiar with the sharecropping idea. Is that a bit like sort of serfs in medieval England? You you basically, you you rent the land, but you don't own it. Is that right? And you work on it. Well, actually, yes, that's exactly right. You You get to work the land, but at the pleasure of the plantation owner. And in return, you give up some share of the crop. And, you know, for Amazon, well, you know better than I do exactly what share Amazon sellers are giving up. But it it seems like a pretty hefty chunk these days, what with advertising and fees and shipping and uh, warehousing expenses. So, <clears throat> so you know, the this is a sharecropping model. And so the sharecroppers need to understand that that's what's going on here. Hey, folks, I hope you're enjoying today's conversation as much as I am with Dr. Robin Gaster. It's certainly big picture stuff, and it might seem a bit, you know, irrelevant to the day to day lives of e-commerce operators or third party sellers on Amazon. I assure you this stuff is just the most important thing I think you can possibly learn outside of the day to day operations. And if you're the CEO or the chief executive officer or managing director or whatever, or sole owner and chief cook and bottle washer of your business, I don't care whether you have a staff of yourself part-time or a staff of 50 full-time. You have to carve out the time to look ahead. And as I said to my co-host and friend, Jason Miles, the other day on the e-commerce leader, our sister podcast that talks all about leadership in the e-commerce space, you have to be a fractional CEO. If you are working at this, say, 40, 50 hours a week, let's say, let's be realistic, 60 hours a week if you're full-time on this, you have to carve out 
maybe two, maybe three hours a week to think like a chief executive officer, which is the means you stop making sure the chains run on time and the goods get delivered and that you dealt with the latest Amazon little sort of hiccup or big change. And you look ahead and see what's coming. You look around at your competition, which includes Amazon. And you look at the environment you are swimming in if you're a third-party seller, and that is driven 100% by Amazon, the Amazon's internal politics and Amazon's objectives and the way it works, really, its internal drivers have become, in the end, so important because it's such a monopoly player, effectively, that actually if we don't understand Amazon's internal drivers, we don't really understand how to be a third-party seller. And even if you're an e-commerce and you never want to touch Amazon with somebody else's barge pole, totally hear you. If you're a Shopify seller or something only, you still need to know what's going on with Amazon because they're by far and away the biggest competitor in the space that you're in as well. So I'm a massive, massive believer in the not just the value, but the sheer necessity of trying to anticipate what Amazon does next, if only in most cases to stay the heck out of the way of their next damaging move. We cannot predict when it will happen exactly or exactly the nature it will take, but there are certain things we can see coming driven by Amazon strategy. So couple of things. First of all, if you want to get the show notes, go to 10kcollective.com where we will make any notes on any related books and so forth. But the best book you can get, obviously, for this is simply Dr. Robin Gaster's book, Behemoth, B-E-H-E-M-O-T-H, if you can't spell, that's a bit of an odd word. The Giant, in other words, Amazon Rising is Behemoth Amazon Rising. And that is available, of course, on Amazon, of course, (laughs) amongst other things. All books on Amazon are available on Amazon. The other thing, if you wanted to, is uh, you can consider working with... um, Robin, if you have a, you know, he's really done a lot of things, business strategy, marketing, solving difficult business problems, as he puts it, obviously a bright man with his PhD. So, you know, 40 years of consulting experience. If you did want to work with Robin, go to robingaster.com. That's R-O-B-N, R-O-B-I-N, I should say, G-A-S for sugar, T-E-R.com. So definitely a book to read. I think the Everything Store was the go-to book that I would I would beg everybody who sells on Amazon and even those in e-commerce now to read. About a decade ago, very much needed an up-to-date version of Amazon as a whole, an examination of it from the 50,000-foot view, and that's exactly what Robin's produced. So I would say if you sell as a third-party seller on Amazon or an e-commerce seller competing with Amazon, it's a must-read It's very readable, it's quite detailed, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that either. If it takes you a few months to work through because you're working extremely fractional uh, CEO, so be it. But I think educate yourself now or live to regret it later. That's my take on this stuff. I don't think it's an optional extra. It took me about seven hours to, to read the whole thing, including you know rereading bits and highlighting and stuff. So it's not gonna take you that long. If you're serious about this business, learn and then you earn or learn don't learn and regret it later these are the options in my opinion if you like the work that i do and you want to talk to me about potentially um, getting one-to-one work with me or joining our special group we are going to be starting a group for figure amazon sellers soon who want to get onto seven figures as soon as possible whilst being profitable and protecting the business profits actually the number that matters then feel free to email michael at amazingfba.com. We're looking for five early adopters for that as they stand. So just email michael at amazingfba. That's M-I-C-H-A-E-L at amazingfba.com if you wanted to explore working with me. Other than that, 
good luck reading the book and i'll be very very interested in your thoughts and conclusions do come and share them with us at the facebook group amazingfba.com forward slash fbf as in face b as in book thanks for listening Thanks for listening to the 10K Collective podcast. I really hope you found the show helpful. I mentioned the London-based masterminds we've been running since September 2017. Members of the 10K Collective Mastermind make a minimum of about £480,000 a year, well over €600,000 or dollars. To find out more about that mastermind, go to amazingfba.com forward slash 10K C, K for kilo, C for Charlie. Million Pound Mastermind members make a minimum of £1.2 million a year. That's about £1.5 million US dollars or euros. To find out more about that mastermind, go to amazingfba.com forward slash MPM. That's M for mother, P for Peter, M for mother. Thanks for listening.